0: Mysteries of ages past, unenlightened shadows cast Down through all eternity,
1: the crying of humanity Tis then when the hurdy-gurdy man comes singing songs of love Then when the hurdy-gurdy man comes singing songs of love
0: hello and welcome to episode nine of ghost stories for the end of the world hope you're good it's a stupidly long title to have to reel off at the start of every episode really but it's my title and a nice guy who got in touch with the show A certain Sam from Pasadena told me that it was cool as hell. So thank you for that, Sam. This is my fourth attempt at recording this episode. I was trying to stick to putting something out at least every two weeks or so, but for some reason I was hammered by technical issues this month. Uh, My mic fucked up on the first step. I miscalculated the compression on the second one and saved it before I could unfuck the sound. And Audacity just decided to stop recording the third attempt about 20 minutes in, which I didn't notice until I got to the hour and 10 minute mark or so. So all of this as well was for a QA and a episode, which is maybe the most hated and misunderstood in the podcast genre. So it struck me that maybe all this is meant to happen. And I decided to follow uh, my man Burial's advice, who was faced with a, a kind of creative impasse while making his second album. So he touched everything he'd been working on, scrapped it all completely. And then he wrote Untrue in like two weeks and that's now a modern classic. So that's what I've decided to do in a way. Um, I can't face a fourth attempt at running through the same answers to the questions that you guys were kind enough to send in because I feel like all of the life and spontaneity has kind of been hammered out of what I had to say. So instead, I've decided to expand on my answer to the final question, which was sent in by a listener who calls herself Loose. And she asked, will there be any episodes about Britain? Well, I can say that there certainly will be in a while. And there'll be a whole series, in fact, about Britain. But there are a couple of reasons for why. I haven't really touched on it in proper depth so far. At first, we we've talked about how MI6 played a big role in creating Operation Gladio and how the whole thing was born out of their experiences running counterinsurgencies in India and Ireland. And we did briefly kind of talk about the City of London in the Mafia and Banco Ambrosiano episodes. But mostly Britain hasn't been 100% relevant to everything that we've been exploring. And then, of course, the other thing is uh, where, the, where the fuck do you begin? Um, I'm under no illusions at all about my country. Like Britain has unleashed unholy horrors on the world for centuries now. Um, the Yanks uh minnows when it comes to, to this kind of game, to be quite frank. And in fact, Alan Dulles and James Angleton and all the other kind of Wall Street, Ivy League, WASP freaks who created the CIA were from that kind of Anglo-American lineage that has survived right up to the present day. And they drew their cues from what the mother country as they saw it, Britain, from what we'd kind of innovated when it came to managing the affairs of an empire and and responding to uh, threats and revolts against imperial control. And one of the more darkly comic side effects of the US becoming the new imperial power in the world has been the way that the British intelligence services MI5 and MI6 they've perfected this trick of letting the CIA take the full blame for stuff that they were just as if not more responsible for so gladio is just one example of this and then um armin and funding and working closely with, like, radical Islamists, um, like, you know, such as what became Al-Qaeda uh, and Wahhabi, Wahhabi sort of clerics and preachers and and terrorist groups and stuff. Um, and the broader involvement in the Middle East uh, beyond that, that, you know, a lot of that stems from Britain as well. We kind of pioneered, I think uh, the term is the management of savagery. We kind of pioneered. That um, technique. So I've decided that this episode would be a good place actually to have a chat about Britain, um, especially given that we're coming off a run of shows where a loosely recurring theme has been the anti-communist operations conducted in Europe during the Cold War. And sometimes I think of the show as a kind of nightmare funhouse at a carnival or something. And every topic is kind of a different room that we're exploring and, and wandering around in. So what I thought we could do for this uh, hour or so is open the Doormat Britain and have a peek inside. Now, inside this, uh, this room, we'll find secret compartments and hidey holes, overflowing filing cabinets, trapdoors, and corridors that branch and split and branch and split again. And we don't really have time to explore everything right now. But what we can do is kind of scan the room and summarize some of the things that we see to kind of sample the atmosphere of of the British uh, establishment, so to speak. And then we'll leave the door propped open while we move on to the American part of the house and we'll return to the British room in due course to properly explore as much as we can. But to begin, we need to hop across the pond to the States. You'll be aware that we're in an election year and Joe Biden is going up against Donald Trump and we're all subjected to a lot of talk about how this time, even more than last time, and the time before that, and the time before that, this time, this election really is the choice between democracy and fascism. But I think if you are listening to this show, I think you and I are in agreement that This is really a contest that's been held to see which declining old man gets to give the eulogy at the funeral of the American empire. That's all it is. But back at the start of the year, there was still a very faint wisp of hope because Bernie Sanders was running in the Democratic primary. And for me, Bernie offered American voters the chance to kind of arrest the decline, to withdraw from the business of empire and use whatever loot was still in the Treasury to give Americans something re- resembling a decent standard of living, a kind of um, cobbled together welfare state. And the first election of the primary was held in Iowa. And just as Bernie was pulling ahead, the app that the Democrats were using to count the votes mysteriously crashed. And in the chaos and confusion and fallout of this app crashing and malfunctioning, um, a young man a bright-eyed young man by the name of Pete Buttigieg, we'll call him Mayor Pete, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, stepped forward and declared himself the winner of the Iowa primary. And this was all the excuse the media needed to run with Pete as the um, long shot, bright-eyed boy from nowhere who had suddenly propelled himself into the affections of uh, all good-hearted liberals everywhere. But then, of course, um, very strange things started to happen. For one, it turned out that one of Mayor Pete's uh, campaign uh, organizers was also the CEO of the company that created the app. Then it turned out that those Pod Save America guys, you know, the Johns, they were seen partying with this woman in the days leading up to the primary. And it turned out that they owned um, some, I think they owned something like 10% of the stock in the company that made the app. Then people started looking at Mayor Pete in a bit more detail. And what they found was very interesting. He was a Harvard graduate. He had spent a year um, in Somaliland with a friend of his who went on to work for USAID. Then he became a kind of uh, mid-level administrative manager for a company called McKinsey before becoming the mayor of South Bend. And while he was the mayor, he volunteered for Navy intelligence and was deployed to Afghanistan. Now, you might say he was doing that to pad out his resume and you would be right. But still, there were many um, mysterious references to his spending time in Iraqi safe houses while he was over there. Afghanistan... Iraqi safe houses. Afghanistan, Iraqi safe houses. And I mean at this point it should go without saying that Harvard is a spook feeder school. McKinsey is a spook front company, a CIA front company. USAID, the one the place that his friend who he went to Somaliland ended up working for. Also a CIA adjacent group. Navy intelligence. What mayor of some little podunk town in the middle of nowhere voluntarily goes into the navy to Afghanistan. And pretty soon people realized this guy's a fucking spook. He is a fucking CIA agent and he has been probably most likely planted in the democratic primary by the agency at the behest of the agency to tank Bernie Sanders campaign. Now, the theory is that The only reason he dropped out, because don't forget, there was no reason for him to drop out, really. He was doing pretty well. He was doing far better than Elizabeth Warren, even Joe Biden at one point. The reason he dropped out was because he had begun to suck votes away from Liz Warren and Joe Biden. And that was never the point of his campaign. The point of his campaign was to eliminate the vaguely, vaguely social democratic-leaning Bernie Sanders campaign to ensure that a respectable kind of establishment Democrat would become the nominee. And it worked, you know. I'm not saying that was the sole reason why the Bernie campaign fell apart. Bernie himself didn't really seem all that up for it this year. Um, And, you know, I think that his efficacy, his politics have always been kind of overrated anyway. But he was the faint wisp of hope, and Mayor Pete contributed towards that wisp of smoke being kind of wafted away completely. Now as you can tell I'm British and I remember looking at all this and uh, my two or three American friends were kind of aghast at this. But don't forget that this is not the first time that the CIA has interfered in domestic American politics uh two of the most uh notable instances i suppose would be well three would be uh watergate where the cia were almost certainly more involved in that than the official record allows then of course george bush senior was the president of the united states and he he was the head of the cia and then a couple of years ago we had those dreadful um women from uh, the NSA and the CIA and whatnot who ran as Democrats in the midterms and got themselves elected and they called themselves uh, the badasses or something like that, something shit. So this is not unusual, you know? And for me especially, I felt a kind of thrill of recognition because I had seen something very similar to this happen in 2019 during the Tory leadership campaign. And it concerned the pale, weedy, kind of wan figure of a certain Rory Stewart. Now, Rory Stewart had decided to run in the Tory leadership campaign after Theresa May was given the boot. And I'd kind of been aware of who he was for a couple of years, but I didn't really know that much about him. And it wasn't until he suddenly achieved this kind of broadsheet omnipresence the minute that he announced his campaign and he'd do these videos where he like went on a walk and talk around London, you know, talking like the, the comical juxtaposition of this kind of geeky, amiable, pleasant enough guy sort of chatting to these, you know, these seriously rough kids from Peckham or these, uh, you know, highfalutin kind of activists from I suppose what you call the, the metropolitan core of the city. Um, He did stuff like that. He was uh, the subject of many a flattering piece in places like The New Statesman and The Guardian and The Observer, where they hailed his kind of pleasant, polite, uh, grounded, common sense approach to the poisoned, febrile, volatile atmosphere of post-Brexit, post-Corbyn politics. And it started to kind of ring alarm bells anyway, because when our media starts doing stuff like this, you know that that there's another shoe that is yet to drop. And sure enough, it turned out that Rory Stewart, possibly, maybe, is an MI6 agent. Now, I say it is because if I've demonstrated nothing else while we've been doing this show, I hope I've demonstrated by now that there is, never, there is no such thing as an ex-spy. There is no such thing as a retired spook. Once you are in that life, you are in it forever. Rory Stewart's dad was definitely a high-ranking MI6 officer. Rory Stewart himself, when he was directly asked about this in 2010, when he was directly asked, are you yourself a member of military intelligence? His response was this, and I am quoting this word for word, that is an unfair question. That is an unfair question. So Rory Stewart briefly became this darling of um, the kind of geeks who uh, were looking for a sensible return to the middle ground in British politics. And what was especially funny about this is that the more I dug into Rory Stewart, the more my kind of spook antenna started perking. And then I found out that Rory Stewart wasn't just an an MI6 agent. Rory Stewart had been the chairman of a group called Le Cercle. Le Cercle is also known as the Pinet Group. The Pinet Group was formed during the collapse of um, the Nazi sympathetic government in France at the end of World War II. Well, maybe the biggest myth about World War II is that that is the war where the West defeated fascism. For me, that's not what happened. What actually happened, which I think we've kind of explored a little bit so far, is that fascism and Nazism wasn't so much defeated as it was appropriated and absorbed into the new dominant power of uh, Western capitalism. And that's Evident in things like Operation Paperclip, where Nazi scientists and intelligence officers and the like were kind of airlifted out of the um, the ruins of of Germany and brought to America and even to Britain and elsewhere in Europe and protected from prosecution for their role in things like the Holocaust and, and the war in general. The Pinay Group was formed by a guy called Antoine Pinay, and he brought together all the prominent kind of Nazi and fascist sympathizers in France to kind of create uh, an an informal group of like-minded souls who were ardently opposed to communism. And there's a whole kind of subplot to what the Pinay group got up to while it was in France, which we'll probably be doing an exploration of that at some point in the future. But for our purposes today, what we need to know is that Around 1969, 1970, the the overall control of the group passed into the hands of the British. And from that point on, it became a kind of transatlantic deal. You had uh, the British would chair a meeting one year in London, and then the next year in New York or Washington, the Americans would chair the meeting. And the whole point of this was to kind of create a private intelligence gathering network that was an invitation-only forum for the most kind of radical right-wing, anti-communist elements in the British and American political, business, intelligence, and military establishments. Now, if that sounds a lot like Operation Gladio, that's because Le Cercle is... You can think of it as the British detachment of Operation Gladio. And while it never formally engaged in the kind of um, false flag, spooky, conspiratorial bombing attacks on the English mainland, the way that Gladio did in Italy or, say, in Belgium or Germany, there nevertheless was a strong element of state subversion that was that was part of its kind of murderous operandi, and we we see the effects of just some of that in, for example, uh, things like the uh, Clockwork Orange scandal, where the government of Harold Wilson, the Labour government, was briefly targeted for an attempted coup d'état by the military and a group of. Uh, radical right-wing agents in MI5 and MI6. So between the late 60s and the early 70s, these guys put together a smear campaign against Wilson and other members of his government. And they went so far as to forge documents that created false links between Labour MPs and the IRA, or that implied that these MPs were taking money from the KGB or other communist governments from around the world, that they were somehow embedded double agents. And they then leak these documents to the press. This is what Dick Cheney called stovepiping. And this is where an intelligence agency creates a fake story gives it to a sympathetic or unwitting journalist who breaks it like it's a real scoop. And then the intelligence agency pretends that they're just as shocked as everyone else and they vow to investigate it, which then lends the fake story an air of gravity and legitimacy. And they did exactly the same thing with weapons of mass destruction and with Russiagate. There's also evidence to suggest that this cell of rogue officers and I mean, I say rogue, but for all I know, this was actually a properly sanctioned operation. Um, Anyway, there's there's evidence that this group had already selected a nominal head of an eventual ruling junta that would, would come to power in Britain. And this was Lord Mountbatten, who is an extremely weird and shadowy figure in British deep politics. And it all culminated in 1974 when... Over a period of about six months, the British Army conducted four operations where they took control of Heathrow Airport, and each time they did this without any forewarning at all, without okaying it with either the government or the airport, and it seems pretty obvious that the point was to send a message to Wilson that they could quite easily shut down the whole country if they felt like it, and Wilson seems to have understood the message completely because he resigned. So how does this connect to Le Circlay? Well, another chair of the group was a guy called Anthony Cavendash. Cavendash, during this period of time, was a very high-ranking MI6 agent who would have had intimate knowledge of all kinds of black operations being undertaken by the outfit. And in fact, a British Army intelligence officer, a guy called Colin Wallace, was approached to be part of the Clockwork Orange plot and refused to get involved. Uh, He then uncovered evidence connecting MI5 and MI6 to a loyalist paramilitary group in Northern Ireland that was running a sexual blackmail operation out of a boys' home in Belfast, the Kinkara boys' home. In a future episode, we'll be going a lot deeper on Colin Wallace and his gradual disillusionment with the British mission in Northern Ireland, because that story is fascinating. But for now, just remember that Anthony Cavendash knew Wallace pretty well, and in his autobiography, Cavendash critically remarked, Wallace's story is frightening and disquieting, but it ties in with many events to which I have been privy. So we'll be talking about all of this in much more detail at another time. But to bring it back fully to Le Cercle. As we said, the first phase of the group from the 40s to roughly the end of the 1960s. It was concerned mainly with bringing together the influential remnants of the Nazi and fascist elites and sympathisers in France and Germany to create a kind of christian european super state and eliminate the threat of socialism and communism it included influential people from places like belgium and italy and it had members who were also affiliated with opus Dei and the catholic church and by the 70s though by the time the british had taken over things were a little bit more grounded. Um, Alan Clark, a a Tory MP, he says that it was around this time that the CIA became the main financier of the group. And overall, Le Cercle's objective by this point seems to have been a complete repudiation of what we call the post-war consensus, the democratic settlement that emerged after World War Two that says that a robust social democratic welfare state and labor rights are necessary to curb the worst excesses of capitalism. An agenda actually leaked in about 1979. And three of the items for discussion at the meeting uh, make for pretty instructive reading. So first we have uh, that they want to establish a system of undercover financial transactions for political aims. They also want to set up international campaigns aiming to discredit hostile personalities or events. And the third uh, item was the creation of a private intelligence service specializing in a selective point of view. But LeCircle's biggest achievement in the 70s, without a doubt, was the election of Margaret Thatcher in 1979. A detachment from Lee Cerkley called The Shield had been set up in 1976 to combat what it deemed to be left-wing subversion of the British state. The Shield was primarily the brainchild of Brian Crozier, who was a historian and journalist who had connections in the CIA and the British intelligence agencies, together with two Tory MPs and MI6 assets, Stephen Hastings and Nicholas Elliott. Remember that by this point, the general assumption was that the, the arc of history was bending to the left. And for deep political actors like the people in Le Circle, they saw the coming decade as an existential fight for control of the future. And you can get a feel for the, the mindset behind a group like The Shield with this quote from Brian Crozier speaking in the early 90s. And he said, quote, At that time, the trade unions and the Labour Party had been largely taken over by the subversive left. Schools, universities and churches were also affected. We viewed left-wing subversion as the political equivalent of AIDS. Classy words from Brian Crozier there. So Thatcher was invited to a LeCircle meeting around the time of her election as leader of the Tory party in 1975. And some accounts actually describe this as a sort of joint meeting between the Le Cercli complex and the Bilderberg group. Although since, since both organizations share so many members, the distinction isn't very significant for this particular uh, discussion. Now, although initially skeptical of Thatcher's political acumen, by all accounts, the conference attendees had fallen head over heels in love with her by the end of the summit. After she gave this passionate, rip-roaring speech in favour of free market capitalism. And after this, The Shield was deployed to organise a donor network and campaign strategy for her that could be put to use in the next election. And the group used their contacts in British media and business and politics to do everything they could to sell her to the public. In Thatcher, they had found someone who was willing to tear up this post-war consensus and transform Britain into a a deregulated haven for private enterprise. The Circle were by no means the only outfit running interference for Thatcher at this point, but their contribution was invaluable. And one story goes that Thatcher, facing massive backlash in her first year or so in office, Consulted members of Lee Circle over how to save her um, dwindling popularity. And they're supposed to have advised her to go even harder on the nationalist rhetoric from which we eventually got the Falklands War. And that's all that war essentially was. It was a tool to ensure that Thatcher got to stay in power and complete the neoliberal turn. And in fact, the meticulous research of David Teacher for his book, "Rug Agents, dug up another agenda item from a LeCircle conference that was held in 1980 that said, quote, affect a change of government in the United Kingdom. And then in ellipses after this, it said, accomplished. And throughout the 80s, Les were also ardent supporters of the apartheid regime in South Africa, and they were running PR campaigns for the government and lobbying Thatcher to take a firm position against the anti-apartheid movement in the UK. Through another Lee Serkley associate, John Carbaugh, and full fledged Lee Serkley members like Margaret Carlyle and Paul Shannon. The group also played a shadowy role in the Iran Contra scandal, helping to root profits through offshore bank accounts and connect gun dealers to potential clients. And then we have stuff like Jonathan Aitken and Norman Lamont, uh, two two massive creeps in British political history. Uh, We had them to helping British arms manufacturers forge closer ties to the Saudi government with the Al-Yamama arms deal, which cut the British government in for 2% of the profits for the next 20 years. And it also helped pave the way towards British state support for the carnage that's now unfolding in places like Yemen. And of course, this overall shift to the right that was taking place in Britain throughout the 80s eventually led to the election of a Labour government in 1997 that Margaret Thatcher described as her biggest achievement. And the seeds that were being sown in the 70s and 80s and 90s created a political and media culture where a man like Rory Stewart, chairman of Le Cercule and possible MI6 agent, could be hailed in the left liberal pages of The New Statesman and The Guardian as a moderating voice of sensible reason in a climate that was poisoned by Brexit and Jeremy Corbyn's hard-left populism. So I guess here I I probably need to say that I'm not trying to give you the impression that Le Circle are the shadow group secretly orchestrating history. Like I'm not trying to say that at all. Uh, It's worse than that, to be honest, because they're just one weird and influential group of elite ideologues in a system that's absolutely stuffed with them. And it's quite vexing to see the British left, uh, particularly leftists who have any kind of profile in the media, talk about the need to break with this neoliberal consensus without even discussing how to deal with these networks of entrenched interests. And in fact, our mainstream leftists mostly prefer not to discuss this stuff at all. At most, they'll talk about the establishment by which they vaguely mean this collection of politicians and business and media figures who represent the interests of capital. But you'll rarely hear anybody talk about a deep state that has actual ideological objectives. Um, The infiltration ops and smear campaigns by Special Branch and SIS in the 70s and 80s really did a number on on our left-wing movements to the point where our so-called guiding lights um, now. Uh, I'm thinking of particular columnists and, and people like that. They are now terrified of being called conspiracy theorists or tinfoil hatters. And it's why these same left wing journalists pretended that Jeremy Corbyn only had to win an election to implement his policies. And it's why they won't even mention like the slow motion assassination of someone like Julian Assange in polite company. I mean, regardless of what you think about the guy, that is what's happening there. Their career is first and foremost, that's why. But beyond that, I think the British sense of decorum means that we find it terribly gauche and embarrassing to think that our security services and uh, kind of deep-seated political actors might be hardline ideologues who are adamantly opposed to the left and that they will take subversive even violent action to snuff out organized opposition to to any form of Western capital. Um, it doesn't matter that MI5 has a vow to protect Western capitalism in its charter. We just simply don't treat them like actual political actors. And you can see this again with what happened the other year when the spy cop scandal broke and it turned out that the Met police had been sending undercover officers into environmentalist activist groups. And these officers had been uh, forming relationships and starting families with uh, female members of these activist groups, you know, having kids and stuff completely under false identities, which they'd nine times out of 10 had stolen from um, dead children. They'd taken the identities of dead children as their own and just, you know, changed the birth date or whatever on the on the birth certificates that kind of briefly surfaced and was a scandal for all of about 5 minutes and then it disappeared again and that to me shows just how you know it's another example of just how strong this blindness to to what our security services are actually all about just how strong that blindness really is and maybe because of the the pandemic i've been thinking a lot this year about antibodies when it comes to politics, and it's been interesting and, and not a little bit depressing to see just how resilient the British establishment, uh, what the hell, right, we'll call it the British establishment, how resilient it actually is in the face of like a genuinely popular left-wing reaction to the last 40 years of liberal, neoliberalism and and managed decline. Now, I've got no interest in, in relitigating Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of Labour because I'm not really a Labour partisan anyway. Uh, I became a member when he took over the leadership, um, but you know, I cancelled the direct debit a long time ago now. But in 2015, it was genuinely a thrill to see how like deeply rattled and outraged the British establishment was by his election. It really caught so many people napping. I think that it was decided that social democracy or or even socialism itself that was uh dead as far as concerns went um things that the the kind of the establishment had to worry about so i think that when he actually became leader of labor it really did shake up a lot of people who figured that things were set in a certain way now and they would never change uh but It was also interesting to watch how this very carefully designed system of politics and media, uh, this, this system that selects for compliance and a tendency to accept the official line on a given topic, it was interesting to see how quickly the antibodies of that system kicked in and how after four years of just sustained attack, labor were wrecked in the 2019 election just two years after the exact same left-leaning leadership had denied Theresa May a majority and it was especially fascinating and and horrifying to see this gigantic propaganda machine mobilized to convince huge numbers of the voting public that Jeremy Corbyn a man who has been repeatedly arrested as far as I know for his role in anti-racist activism how this machine was mobilized to convince people that this guy was possibly a bigger anti-Semite than Adolf Hitler. And that to me, that is true power. That is the result of a very careful calculated seeding of increasingly right-wing ideology into the popular discourse over the course of 40, 50 years. Uh, We joke a lot over here about how journalist X or Y is an MI5 asset or even a full agent. And to be honest, I mean, there are half a dozen journalists, at least, that I suspect actually may well be um, spooks. But what the destruction of the, uh, the Corbyn project, we'll call it, what the destruction of that demonstrated to me was that you don't really need... spooks to put a bunch of like guardian writers on the payroll when they're already psyoping themselves into believing that this weedy guy who makes jam and collects pictures of manhole covers is a bigger threat to a minority community in britain than a party that is led by theresa may or boris johnson and then of course we have the stuff that really set off my spook antenna um And I'm thinking specifically here of how Corbyn was continually smeared as being uh, anti-British, but also of one event in particular, which is when he was accused by The Sun, one of Murdoch's rags, of being a spy for Czechoslovakia back in the 1980s. And this was then picked up by other outlets and covered at length. And the beauty of this kind of smear is that more respectable places like the BBC or The Independent can run the story and amplify it and lend it uh, legitimacy while pretending that they're just you know innocently asking questions. And bear in mind that this was coming in a climate where just two years before, Joe Cox, a Labour MP, had been assassinated by a fascist for what he deemed to be disloyalty to Britain. Corbyn himself had already been the target of at least two assassination attempts by this point, one of which resulted in the killer driving his van into a crowd of people outside a mosque after he'd spent a couple of hours travelling around London looking for Corbyn. And it was in this atmosphere, with a bunch of Brit nationalists just itching to go and kill somebody, that Theresa May, ghoul that she is, decided to pick up this story and call Corbyn a spy in parliament during prime minister's questions. And this kind of smear campaign is pure MI5 shtick and it was only once it had been out there for a couple of weeks that they finally intervened and said there was no basis to the claim. But in the meantime, we had a bunch of British generals casually speculating about launching a coup against the Corbyn government if they didn't like what he was doing after his first three months or so. And then we had the paratroopers who leaked the video of themselves using his picture for target practice. And then we had Mike Pompeo last summer openly threatened to intervene in a UK election if it seemed likely that Corbyn's Labour would win. But, you know, for all that, I don't really want to dwell too much on Corbyn. I mean, it is what it is. And frankly, I was shocked that Corbyn's advisor, uh, Seamus Milne, uh, who is the author of a book called The Enemy Within, which is a book about how MI5 and Thatcher's government went to war with the miners' unions in the 80s using propaganda and subversion. I was shocked how he didn't see all of this rat fucking coming from a mile away and devise some way to deal with it. Or, you know, maybe he did and whatever he, whatever he came up with just wasn't good enough to win. Who knows? But we'll move on and we'll have a look at Corbyn's successor, Keir Starmer. Now, it doesn't really surprise me that he's already dropping the leftist pledges that he adopted during the leadership campaign, or that as of me recording this episode, he's writing begging letters to wealthy donors who abandoned the party under Corbyn, asking them to come back and promising them God knows what in return. Starmer is a knight of the realm. He's on first name terms with a bunch of spooks from MI5 and MI6. Uh, He used to meet with the MI5 boss, Jonathan Evans, for drinks. He described himself as delighted to announce that the British security services had no case to answer for their role in the CIA's rendition program during the war on terror. Starmer was also a member of the Trilateral Commission, uh, the same Trilateral Commission of Nixon and Kissinger and Jeffrey Epstein. And at the Labour Party conference of 2020, he was introduced on stage by a former Labour MP called Ruth Smith, who was exposed by WikiLeaks as being on the CIA's payroll as a strictly protect informant in 2009. These are just the antibodies of the system kicking in. You know so when i see people talking in these apocalyptic terms about how we're all fucked now like we've all had it because of what's going on with labor i kind of have to be a bit you know like it was decent as long as corbyn was in charge but it's not the end of the world that like this has happened with starmer now this is just the system uh kind of returning itself to a state of normality <laughs> As far as Lee Circle goes, it's still around. Um, the most recent chairman was a guy called Nadim Zahawi, who is another Tory MP and is also the parliamentary undersecretary of state for business and industry. We love really long titles in this country. And he's also the chief strategy officer for Gulf Keystone Petroleum International, which is a company that has oil interests in Zahawi's home country of Iraq. This was founded by a couple of private equity firms based in the United Arab Emirates, the U.S. and Kuwait. And I imagine that those connections to the U.S. and the Middle East and his role as undersecretary for business and industry, I imagine they are very useful to a chairman of Lee Serkley and Zahawi didn't actually declare his membership in the registry of MPs' interests either, it was accidentally leaked, and it also turned out that two unnamed members of staff in his government department are also the circular members. In 2018, the news broke that a secretive government operation called the Integrity Initiative, or the Institute for Statecraft, had been set up by a guy called Chris Donnelly, who was a Tory affiliated with Lucercli and a special advisor to Thatcher, a former special advisor. And the purpose of Integrity Initiative was ostensibly to combat Russian disinformation campaigns. But in practice, the group was largely diverting its funding into activities targeting Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party and other left-wing activist groups in the UK. And it peddled the same kind of russophobic propaganda that we've been seeing constantly since Brexit and the election of Trump. And it had apparently been using social media campaigns to try and influence people into supporting the British government during the ongoing Brexit negotiations. Now, after it was exposed by an MP called Chris Williamson in Parliament, The operation completely deactivated its social media accounts and somebody set to work trying to scrub its whole presence from the internet and then this was kind of reversed and you know the website stayed up. But it also turned out that they'd been paying a number of UK journalists to give talks at different conferences alongside spooks and politicians and business leaders uh, which these talks all mostly revolved around information warfare. James Ball, who is a former WikiLeaks journalist and a bullshit artist par excellence. He got out ahead of the scandal by writing a quickie article for The Guardian. Here, he admitted that he'd been paid by the outfit to give a talk on information warfare, but that left-wing journalists had misunderstood what they were seeing when they saw the Integrity Initiative amplifying attack pieces against left-wing organizations he concluded that the only thing that he and his friends who took money from Integrity Initiative uh, were guilty of was allowing fringe radicals to get the wrong end of the stick over what the purpose of the Institute for Statecraft actually was. And in any event, he argued, the real villain was really Russia. Uh, This is a quote from the article, quote, Russia is the master of blurring the boundaries between the state, the media, and outriders. By being seen trying to do the same, even, as seems likely, with far cleverer rules of engagement, European governments have found themselves engaging in a mud fight with a pig. That's a situation in which there will only be one winner, and a contest only one participant will enjoy. If we are to tackle Russian-backed misinformation, and to restore trust in our institutions, we must. We can't do it by trying to beat them at their own game. If efforts involve government funding, this should be openly declared and every penny publicly accounted for. Every participant in the effort should be named. Each tactic should be publicly declared. Now, remember, this is come in two thirds of the way through an article where he is only writing this article because he's been exposed. He had no intention of revealing that he'd actually given this talk or, or that he'd been paid to do it or anything like that. So anyway, Yeah, this kind of inside out argument, up is down, left is right, black is white. This is the kind of thing that the British, it it, it sums the British establishment up. It's the British establishment in micro. It's saying, the only thing I'm guilty of is not being as guilty as my enemy. And so I am in fact, entirely innocent. And furthermore, you are also the enemy and a fringe crackpot for even daring to suggest that my intentions were not as pure as the driven snow. It's exactly the kind of like artful nonsense that the the British state and its outriders excel at whenever they are facing any scrutiny that might discomfort them. I think another good example of what the mindset, uh, the, the psychosphere of the British establishment looks and feels like in practice, up close is probably best illustrated uh, with something that I read in, I believe, Time or Life magazine. It was an article on the Wayback Machine, anyway. It was a scanned article published uh, in the 1980s at first. It was at the height of the Soviet-Afghan war. The journalist was interviewing a Mujahideen fighter about his experiences dealing with the CIA and MI6. Uh, The journalist was asking, uh, what are the differences? Uh, How did the two outfits compare? Now, the Mujahideen fighter said that the CIA were mean and they could be dumb and violent, but they also had a kind of goofy earnestness at times. And some of them even seemed to believe in a kind of higher patriotism, uh, that they were in Afghanistan to safeguard American interests. And and even some of them seemed to believe Afghani interests as well. When the journalist asked him about MI6, the British, the guy just kind of blinked slowly and shook his head. And he said that the Brits were the real brains of the operation, even though it was supposed to be a CIA-led mission. He said he'd never met anybody as charming and polite and ruthless and cold-blooded and calculating as the MI6 field agents that he'd worked with. And when the journalist asked him to elaborate, the Mujahideen fighter politely declined. And I think about that a lot. I think about a country that can produce a calculatedly buffoonish clown like Boris Johnson dangling from that fucking zip line while people laugh and an SAS squad that is, as I record this, is being investigated for training child soldiers in Yemen. It's like a country where we have a pundit class who believe that Britain has the greatest free press in the world while that same free press mostly refuses to ask why So many of the guys that get busted plotting acts of terrorism seem to have either been under the supervision of MI5 or actually on the payroll while they fought in Libya or in Syria or in Yemen. This country, my country, sometimes I think is probably cursed and that there has to be a reckoning coming for what we've done to people all over the world. But the reckoning never seems to come somehow, never seems to arrive. And we keep deciding that we're not the guilty party after all. Um, As I say, we'll be diving into everything in this episode and more at a later date. But I think for now, this is probably a good place to call time in. I don't know. It's enough to make you want to get drunk and listen to sad songs by 60s garage bands. I might do that actually. As always, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, Remember that you can hit us up at ghoststoriesend at gmail.com. That's ghoststoriesend at gmail.com. Comments, suggestions, questions, whatever. Like and subscribe if you haven't already. Urge on friends and loved ones alike and don't get captured. Thanks a lot, guys.
1: What rules are you playing?
0: There's only one rule.
1: Expediency. Munt gives London what it needs, so Fiedler dies and Munt lives. It was a foul, foul operation, but it paid off. Who for? What the hell do you think spies are? Moral philosophers measuring everything they do against the word of God or Karl Marx? They're not. They're just a bunch of seedy, squalid bastards like me. Little men, drunkards, queers, henpecked husbands, civil servants... ...playing cowboys and Indians to brighten their rotten little lives. Do you think they sit like monks in a cell, balancing right against wrong? Yesterday, I would have killed Munt, because I thought him evil and an enemy, but not today. Today, he's evil and my friend. London needs him. They need him so that the great moronic masses you admire so much can sleep soundly in their flea-bitten beds again. They need him for the safety of ordinary, crummy people like you and me. You killed Fiedler. How big does a cause have to be before you kill your friends? What about your party? There's a few million bodies on that path. Cause you've broken my heart now Didn't take you too long Our loves on the dark side Now I know you lied Give you all my sweet love But you weren't satisfied